from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. medieval times, it was thought if you had the right combination, you could turn base metals into gold through a process known as alchemy. Well, it never really turned out that way until now. With this recent discovery, we have been able to turn ordinary sounds and music into heavenly jazz. We call it jazz alchemy. Don't believe me? Try it out. Tune in Tuesday night, 6 to 8. I like to mix it up, combine the right formula with a lot of variations of jazz. I think you'll like it. A laid-back, jazzy mood to ease you into the evening. Hope you take a listen with me, your host, June. Don't forget, Jazz Alchemy, the magic mix of jazz. Tuesdays, every Tuesday night, 6 to 8, only on WERU Community Radio. Support for Wabanaki Windows comes from the Abbey Museum, founded in 1928 at Sewer de Mont Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Maria Gerard is up next. Good morning, Wabanaki land. Edgy Wooly Giskok, Bem Giskok. It's a beautiful day today, and thank you for joining us. Uh, you are listening to Wabanaki Windows on WERU. I am your host for today, filling in for uh, the regular uh, host, Donna Loring, who is uh, home and on the mend, hopefully. Um, Donna, I'm sure you're listening, and we send you... Some healing thoughts and good wishes for a speedy and thorough recovery. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and peoples of interest. Today, we're talking about the Idle No More movement, its history, and what is happening here in Maine inside that movement. And on our show today... We have uh, in the studio Sherry Mitchell, Banawapskewi, uh, Penobscot, who is director of the Land Peace Foundation and a lifelong advocate for indigenous rights. Uh, she has worked the past uh, decade on sacred sites protection. Thanks for being here, Sherry. Good morning, Maria. Thank you for having me. And on the phone from Toronto is Jules Kustachin. Jules is from Attawapiskat First Nation. She is a writer and director known for her social activism work in Indigenous rights and education. Uh, Jules, thanks so much for being here with us. Hi. Hi. Um, so 
Let's get started about this I Don't Know More movement. It seems that it's all the rage these days, and uh, a lot of people have a lot of questions about it. And um, from my understanding, I Don't Know More is a peaceful movement for Aboriginal Indigenous rights and environmental justice that began in Canada at the end of 2012. Um, it began in protest of last century termination policies. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, Sherry, these particular termination policies um, that have sort of caused all this rage. Yeah, thank you, Maria. Um, I first would like to stress one of the things that you said that I don't know more is a peaceful movement that. Um, there has been, uh, you know, some talk of some dissension, but uh, this really is a movement um, for indigenous rights and environmental justice that's global at this point, and all of the demonstrations uh, have been peaceful. The uh, attack that's been posed by Prime Minister Harper has really been two-pronged. Um, the first prong of that attack has certainly been against the First Nations peoples. It involves a systematic termination of their sovereignty, which is being accomplished by eliminating Aboriginal rights and treaty uh, rights in violation of the Canadian Constitution, treaty law, and customary international law. Um, these actions are also in direct opposition to the rights outlined by the United Nations and the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which was endorsed by Canada in November of 2010. Prime Minister Harper is using the stress of poverty, essentially, to get First Nations to sign over their rights as uh, Aboriginal peoples. And so the the agreements that he's having people sign essentially take uh, First Nations, which are sovereign nations, turn them into municipalities within Canada, change the status of their reserve lands into taxable fee lands that can be sold to individuals, which uh, most tribal lands are held communally. And so by changing the status of these lands, it's a divide and conquer mechanism that's as old as time. And they also, uh, these agreements also extinguish both Aboriginal and treaty rights. In order to accomplish this, Prime Minister Harper has introduced three new policy measures. The first one is a results-based measure, which uh, gets them to sign these agreements that we talked about. And so for those who don't fall into that category, who fail to sign these agreements, uh, the next step is for him to, or for his administration, to cap and to cut their funding. In some communities, this has resulted in a funding cut of up to 75%, which is crippling to them. And the final uh, piece of that three-policy approach is to eliminate all of their funding and all of their resources for uh, advisory council so that they don't have anybody to help them to understand this mountain of policies and legislation that's being thrown at them. So uh, those policy approaches are being actually supported by legislation. There's a whole slew of new um, bills that have been put forth, C-27, which is a First Nations Financial Transparency Act, uh, C-45, which is the big one that everybody's talking about, mm -hmm. um, the omnibus uh, budget bill, which includes amendments to the Indian Act um, regarding voting on reserve lands, lowers the threshold for those lands to be uh, taken from the First Nations. Bill S-2, which are Family Homes on Reserves and Matrimonial Interests or Rights Act. Bill S-6, First Nations Elections Act. 
S-8, Safe Drinking Water for First Nations, uh, C-428, Indian Act Amendment and Replacement Act. Um, and then there are also Senate public bills. There's S-207, which is uh, an act to amend the Interpretation Act about the non-derogation of Aboriginal and treaty rights. And then S-212, which is a First Nation self-government recognition bill. Mm. And so all of these things are being used um, in a multi-layered attack against the sovereignty and the rights of the Aboriginal peoples. Wow, that sounds like um, real serious business. So, um, Jules, um, what does this situation look like as an Ottawapiskat citizen? Um, do you want to add to that um, information and just sort of describe uh, what's going on in your home community? Well, right now I'm living off reserve. I live in Toronto. Um, I am an Ottawapiskat band member. Um, my understanding of the Idle No More campaign is that it originated on social media, um, Facebook with um, four women um, who, express, who expressed some concern around uh, Bill C-45. And at the same time, um, my community, uh, Chief Spence, declared state of emergency um, last year. And um, basically after that state of emergency, um, as you may well be aware that we were uh, basically attacked through media, um, and distracting what was really going on on reserve. And um, I think in the fact that nothing actually happened, um, Chief Spence uh, went on a hunger strike. So there's, there's several things that are happening all at once. And I think um, with the Idle No More campaign right now, I just saw in the paper that the founders are somewhat concerned that um, Chief Spence is the face of the Idle No More campaign. But um, in actuality, my understanding is that she is responding to the fact that after the declaration of um, emergency, nothing happened. Here in Toronto, in Canada, um, there's a lot of stuff happening in the media right now, and it's really concerning. I find there's a lot of um, the media itself uh, are using terms like that we are divided um, violent, militant, <laughs> mm -hmm. and a hundred years ago, you know, our ceremonies, our dances, and our songs were banned, were criminalized. So I'm, uh, if 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 people are are seeing that singing and dancing are militant and violent, then I'm really really concerned. Maybe the federal government will ban that again. I'm not too sure, <laughs> but wow. you know, it's. Yeah. You know, you're you're impacted by what you see on the TV and hear in the news, right? So it's um, it's a hard time because there was a there was a buzz. You could feel it in your body. You can the pride. Everybody was excited about this, you know. And then the Friday came with the meeting, and um, now what? We're all just kind of playing the wait, the waiting game to see what's going to happen. Um, and the aftermath, the backlash, you know, the media. It just, it, it hits you in the soul, like you, you, you know, it's almost like you're fearful to send your kids out because you're scared of what they're going to deal with when they go out, you know, to school and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's right. That is a real, um, a real life concern. Mm -hmm. um, wondering, you, you had uh, talked about this state of emergency mm -hmm. that was declared. Can you talk a little bit more about what sorts of conditions caused um, your chief to declare that state of emergency? The housing crisis, we had a high housing crisis. We, you know, the fact that there's um, no clean drinking water, 
you know, my cultural belief and my um, understanding is that water is essential and it's what um, a community or an individual needs to flourish. And if you don't even have clean water, how is any community going to succeed or, or flourish in their lives? Um, it was just, I think, a response to, you know, hitting hitting the wall. Like, we're done with this. We need change. Things need to happen. Um, mm-hmm. We're one of the richest countries and with all these resources, small population, and we have our native communities in the northern parts who are living in third world conditions. To me, that's just appalling. And how do you speak to that? Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what is what is the reasoning behind that? Why are we living this way? Or why are my, you know, extended family and friends up in Ottawa, Piscot, why are they living this way? And I had an aunt that just recently passed. And when I was doing my film, Remembering Inini Moen, I went up there and I was interviewing my great aunt and my great uncle. And I could see the black mold from the ceiling and the ceiling falling down. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, how can anybody, you know, how can this not impact people's health? You know, and she just recently passed, like, of cancer, and it happened really quickly. And I'm thinking, that I'm thinking, you know, this is my belief that has something to do with the living conditions up there. Right, yeah. You know, it, it's unacceptable. I agree. Uh, uh, Jules, um, when that state of emergency was declared, we actually ran a story on that on our webpage, the Land Peace Foundation's mm-hmm. webpage. And uh, we followed that story. And one of the things that struck me about that story is that there were two health officials from Canada, one a provincial health official mm-hmm. who went to Ottawa Piscat on his own accord, not on the command of his government, okay. and who um, informed the Canadian government that there was an immediate risk to life in mm-hmm. that community, that the living conditions were um, fourth world style poverty. and. Wow. That, uh, you know, people, some people were living in tents in a Canadian mm-hmm. winter without any mm-hmm. running water or plumbing mm-hmm. or adequate heating uh, or dangerous heating units mm-hmm. when they were available. And that the Canadian government completely failed to respond to those um, cries for help. Uh, even a month after when another medical doctor came forward mm-hmm. and held a press conference saying that there was a need for immediate assistance there, the Canadian government again failed to come forward and to provide any assistance to that community. Mm-hmm. And the Huffington Post ran a story on that saying, what, titled, What If You Declared a State of Emergency and Nobody, and came. nobody came? Yeah, and I think that that's really, really telling because there's all of this talk about the Canadian government subsidizing First Nations people, mm-hmm. and that talk goes on here in this country as well, in the United States. I'm sure it does, yeah. yeah. And the reality is that these governments are being subsidized by the indigenous populations because all of the resources, billions of dollars worth of resources are being taken out of First Nations lands. And so it really is the other way around. But the media flips that story to make it look like the Indians are being supported by these Mm -hmm. governments. And that's not at all the case. We know that the resources that are being taken away from our lands are what's subsidizing those governments. And so... I think it's really important for people to understand the conditions that, uh, you know, the indigenous populations are living in, in North America. And this is not new. Right. You know, there hasn't been clean water in decades. Right. Mm -hmm. So it takes a state of emergency to to get people's attention, right? 
you know, but I mean, this has been going on. I don't know too much about the U.S., but I, from what I've seen on the news and so forth, or my own research, is that communities are living the same way. You know, there's no clean water or there's no access to water. Or, you know, why is this going on? <laughs> you know, this is just, and why does it take the community to say, okay, I've had enough? You know, mm-hmm. the discussion should be happening all the time. Right. It shouldn't take a hunger strike. It shouldn't take idle no more to get the prime minister to, to listen to our issues or, you know, it just, and then that whole thing with him not responding or, or taking the time, you know, too much time, you know, to meet with the chiefs or Chief Spence, it's like, it just kind of demonstrates um, the lack of regard. Right. And it, painful. <laughs> and as it was brought yeah. up at a rally on Friday that was held mm-hmm. in solidarity here in Maine, this one in mm-hmm. Holton, um, that uh, analogy of how uh, Chief Spence is, you know, actually starving for justice. Starving for justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I did a little bit of research on Attawapiskat First Nations, and I was, um, I was interested in this cost of living, and it described oh how it is extremely, incredibly high due yes. to remote location and the way um, the citizens are able to receive their goods. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like we can just zip on down I-95 to Home Depot and get what right. it is we need. And it's a fly-in community, too. You have to take a train up to Moosonee. Mm-hmm. There's no roads up to Moosonee. Then you got to take a plane from Moosonee to Ottawapiskat. <laughs> and what, you know, I found really disturbing is um, th- the fact that the De Beers Diamond Company is... is like 80 kilometers west of the community. Mm-hmm. So is extracting um, these resources and mm-hmm. um, on Attawapiskat traditional lands and then right. uh, handing over the royalties not to Attawapiskat First Nations, but to the province of Ontario. Mm-hmm. So that's particularly disturbing. Well, I think it's important that we're at a place right now with this Idle No More movement. I'm not a spokesperson for Idle No More, but right. I just it gets it, it's it's creating a space for dialogue. Absolutely, you know? yeah. and the fact that the world is responding mm-hmm. is you know you can feel that change is coming, and we have the support of our allies. It's not just an indigenous movement. This is a human being movement. You know, right. we need to make change. This is our our land and our water. Yes, can impact I- everybody. You know, I think that, you know, the three important, real important things that I heard you say just in that sentence was um, the hopefulness of this movement, mm-hmm. um, the allies mm-hmm. um, that are joining in, you know, over, you know, many, many years, we have been um, educating people about First Nations and about our history. And mm-hmm. the more people um, learn and understand uh the more likely they are to be on board with mm-hmm. our causes um, once they're able to understand it. And, of course, water. I mean, that mm-hmm. is... Essential. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you yeah. think? Um, mm-hmm. So that is something that we can really relate to here in this state um, is our concern about the water. Sherry, did you have something that you wanted to add? Well, I just one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand about what's going on here is that the... The Indian Act was used as a model for policies of apartheid in South Africa, mm. where uh, the Bantu tribes were being put on what were called homelands mm. and denied all of their rights as the first inhabitants of those lands. And the same thing has happened here in North America, where uh, Indian people have even been, either been put on reserve land or reservations in the United States. And the entire planet rose up 
in opposition to apartheid in South mm -hmm. Africa after only 50 years. But these policies of apartheid have been used against indigenous people on the North American continent and, you know, in South America and Central America as well for hundreds of years. Uh, where are the musicians? Where are the public figures? Mm -hmm. Where are the celebrities standing up in opposition to this apartheid? And so people need to understand that there's something wrong with the public psyche mm -hmm. that allows for this to continue. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we need to um, understand that people are standing up on these environmental issues which are critical for life on this planet, but they also need to understand the issues of apartheid that are being played out here um, by these governments and rise up with the indigenous and aboriginal peoples and put an end to those policies and practices as well. Right, and um, just uh, as a reminder to anyone who may be joining us late, you are listening to Wabanaki Windows on WERU, and I am your host for today, uh, Maria Gerard, filling in for Donna Loring. And today we're talking about the Idle No More movement and um, the situation at Attawapiskat First Nations and Chief Spence, and um, that has really been making Chief Spence almost a household name down here um, in Maine for sure. Um, and, and on the line, we have Jules Kustachin, um from Toronto, who is a citizen of uh, Ottawapiskat First Nation, also in the studio, Sherry Mitchell. And uh, we will be taking some calls uh, shortly. Um, but first, I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about this environmental um, link to what's going on. We talked about water and the sacredness of water and the necessity of water. And we talked a little bit about this um, up in Holton. Did you want to add a little bit more to that, Sherry? Uh, sure. The The second prong of Harper's attack um, is an attack against our mother, the earth. Harper's uh, administration in recent years uh, has either amended or repealed more than 70 federal laws that were established for the protection mm -hmm. of the environment. These include the Navigable Waters Act uh, and the Fisheries Act. And so when we start looking at um, the impact of those um, actions, we start to see the larger picture of some of the environmental degradation that's uh, at the heart of this for, um, it's essentially paving the way for the oil and gas industries to have a blank check to do mm. whatever they'd like to do across Canada. And so um, hundreds of waterways in Canada have been affected by the amendment or repeal of these environmental protections. And as we know, mm. you know, water does not know a boundary. And so these waters that are in very real danger of being destroyed in Canada will flow into the United States at many points of entry. Mm -hmm. And certainly the air that is being destroyed by the extraction uh, practices that are being used uh, by the the corporations involved in these pipeline projects um, is going to infect affect the entire planet, and so we have a country right now in the United States where uh, two thirds of the country is in danger of um, having a lack of water. Right, the Oglala Aquifer is constantly mm -hmm. being depleted. There's drought conditions across much of the country. And so when we start dealing with these environmental issues, none of us are unaffected. And so in this way, these indigenous land issues, these indigenous 
land rights cases, these cases for the protection of sacred sites. Those are not just indigenous issues. Those become human issues because the lands that are being taken, these pristine, protected lands that are being taken from the indigenous and aboriginal populations are ending up in the hands of industry. Mm. And that affects all people on the planet. Everybody has a vested interest in what's happening here. Hmm. Anything you want to add to that, Jules? Um, I just keep going back to, you know, yes, um, we, we, I think we also need to acknowledge to, I just want to add to it, if I could, around our educational system, mm-hmm. um, is that um, Indigenous issues are basically um, swept under the carpet. Our um, youth have no idea um, anything um, in terms of treaties or um, uh, reserve systems or the residential school. And it's almost like you are trying to um, deal with the environmental issues, Aboriginal um, issues, Mm -hmm. and then trying to deal with a nation that doesn't know the history. And it's hard. um, I guess with this, I feel like, you know, there's times where I'm I'm speaking and I feel like I'm I'm, I'm preaching to the converted. Mm -hmm. And then there's times where I feel like I'm speaking and then... Um, nobody has a clue (laughs) or they don't feel that they're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we always have to go back to the core, you know, like, yes, there was a response, somewhat of a response to the state of emergency in Ottawa, you know, we had some uh, trailers shipped up and so forth, but, but nothing really changed, if you know what I mean. Like, we're still dealing with the ignorance, we're still dealing with the corporations, we're still dealing with the fact that, you know, um, you know, corporations, like you said, you know, um, having access to the land and there's no protection and so forth. So how do you, how do you um, create change if people don't acknowledge the history, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to process everything that you're saying, so I'm right. trying to like how are, you know, the Idle No More movement is huge. We have people talking now. But what I see from the media is that people are not talking about environmental issues. They're right. talking about that Indigenous people are divided, that we're confused, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we're militant. So they're missing the whole point. <laughs> right. You know, Idle No More is around Bill C-45. It's in response to, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, it's going to bring significant changes to the Indian Act and changes to land management on reserves and so forth. So, but nobody's talking about that. Um, Well, we are, (laughs) but I'm talking on a larger scale. So I'm really concerned. I'm I'm just thinking, how do we, you know, I've had to put my kids, uh, sit my kids down. I have twins that are six years old and I'm trying to explain to them. I have a 16 year old and an Mm -hmm. 18 year old and I'm trying to talk to them. So it almost has, it almost boils down to the educational system. Right. Where are we within the colonial history? Right. You know, we're a dying race or we don't, you know, but I I just, I'm just trying to figure out how we can continue what we're doing and then have people understand that the land, you know, we're all living on Mother Earth. We're all impacted by this. It's not just an Indian issue or First Nations issue. So... I guess because I'm here and I'm seeing a lot of the media and stuff and I'm trying to see how do we how do we break that barrier? How do we um how do we get the message out there that this impacts everyone? 
Right. I agree that there's there is a, a shortfall in the education mm-hmm. and in the the media coverage of this. Um, one of the articles that were was in the Bangor Daily News mm-hmm. um, that talked about the rally that was held in Portland. You right. know, they talked about the natives standing up for their rights again. Right. But mm-hmm. they they don't bother to get into any of the details about right. what exactly are those rights, you know, what mm-hmm. are the issues. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important to really stress that fact mm-hmm. that the media coverage of this has been really um, strategically limited, mm-hmm. that um, the press coverage of that event in Portland was uh, a real indication of that. We had speakers um, from all of the different tribal communities and uh, one of the things that's going on is that there's a actually a case right now, um, a claim by the state of Maine against the Penobscot Nation. Um, there's a, a case going on regarding the water mm-hmm. rights for the Penobscot River. And so um, in that discussion, the Penobscot community was completely left out of the discussion about what was going on down there, even though um, a prominent part of that process was a, a speech by a Penobscot tribal member talking about the very real issues, including C-45. And, uh, you know, a lot of the legal and political issues that are at the core of what's mm-hmm. going on here. And all of that discussion is being left out of the mm-hmm. media coverage. It's only covering the aspects of, um, you know, Indians standing up for their rights again, right. which is acceptable in some ways, I, I guess. So, Jules, before we... Um we let you go, and again, we thank you so much for um, joining us this morning and taking time out of your uh, day. I'm wondering, uh, one of the things that people always seem to, our allies always seem to want to know is, what can they do? Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, do you have any uh, sorts of suggestions or recommendations for uh, First Nations people or for our allies in regards to what's happening here? I think with our allies, they need to start responding to the racism that's out there and not just leave it up to us yeah. <laughs> to keep dealing with all those posts that are usually left on those websites for days and days and days and days right. that are really quite harmful. I think we need um, our allies to step in and to challenge ignorance. Um, I just, it, it, it's going to be a, a long and, and, and hard fight, and we need people on board, and we need people to share the knowledge. Like, for example, my mother's got a grade five institutional education, mm-hmm. and she's a residential school survivor, and I sat with my mom and talked to her for over an hour trying to explain in simple terms for my mom to understand what was going on, and after I was done with that conversation... She was so ecstatic. She was so excited. She was like, this is amazing. <laughs> but just the fact that you have to, you know, take the time, talk to people, make sure that the information's out there, that it's accessible. Knowledge is power, right? right and absolutely. that's why, you know, I'm a mom. I got four boys, so I know what's in the uh, curriculum, and it's frustrating. It's mm-hmm. like you're still talking about people in loincloths? Really? <laughs> Come on. It's 2013, mm-hmm. you know, so... Let's get with the times and let's, you know, let's talk about what's happening now and current stuff. And, yes, we have to acknowledge the past. We have to know the past. But, you know, when we're talking about the educational system, we have to talk about um, how this history, this colonial history has omitted us, basically, and how we can rewrite it and have more of an inclusive history. And I think with that you're going to see change with our youth and our native youth. They're going to feel proud. Like, how can my son is 16? 
he's having a hard time with school, and I think, how is he going to feel part of that system if he's not even included? How is this child going to want to stay in school Mm -hmm. if he's not even part of that? And the history that they're share they're sharing or they're 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 imposing on us is 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 inaccurate and one you know from one perspective. Right. So I think change happens with our kids, with our elders, with ourselves that we acknowledge and you know um, share that knowledge that we do have and ensure that the educational system is inclusive. Right. I don't know. That that's mm-hmm. I'm more <laughs> I'm speaking from a mom right now because I'm really frustrated with the educational system, but. Right. You know, and I think that's where we start, because if our kids are feeling strong and and proud, that's going to make change. I couldn't agree more. And Jules, thanks again so much for joining us today. We're going to uh, let you get back to your day. Okay. And um, uh, we're going to this time invite some call-ins if anyone's out there listening and would like to join us. The phone number where you can reach us is 1-866-625-625. Nine three seven eight, and we are Wabanaki Windows on WERU, and we're talking about the Idle No More movement. Um, Sherry Mitchell is here in the studio. Jules Kustachin is um, was just on the line, um, and is getting back to her day. And so again, we invite people to call in and share with us, you know, what moves them about the movement. Because we talked about um, the Idle No More movement and how the purpose has sort of morphed um, over time. It's only been about, what, a month Mm -hmm. or so that it's been in existence. Um, And what started with four women uh, in a social media campaign um, has now just um, taken off. Um, like wildfire over Indian country. And um, people are really using it as a springboard for communicating concerns and um, finding unity, um, I believe. What is, is that your thoughts as well, Sherry? It is. I think that um, one of the things that is so exciting to me about this movement is that in order to get people to start moving together in a united direction, the first thing that needs to happen is that people need to wake up. Mm. And I think that that's what's happening with this movement because it's not just been in Indian country, it's been in the Ukraine, it's been all over the UK, it's in, you know, um, New Zealand and Australia and Japan. And so it's being supported all over the planet. People are waking up to these issues. Um, I understand we have a caller on the line. Um, caller, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. Uh, I'm awake. I'm waking up. Uh, <laughs> All right. I've had a, a lifetime of uh, of uh, lethargy, actually, to uh, undo, and it's uh, it's taken quite a while. But um, I'm waking up, and one of the signs I have of it is that I can't forget the slogan "Idle No More." Mm-hmm. For some reason, I can forget an awful lot of things that I really shouldn't be able to forget, uh, such as my wife's birthday. But (laughs) I cannot forget Idle No More. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know quite why that is, but uh, there's another thing I can't forget. It's that something is supposed to happen on the 28th of this month to -hmm. do with Idle No More. And I don't remember what it is. But uh, I... I think the more chances we can give to uh, uh, your allies, I'm really glad to be able to maybe count myself 
as part of that uh, growing. Good. We're glad to have you. Uh, <laughs> I would hope it would soon, sooner rather than later, be a vast number of us, you know, more or less synonymous with the 99%, because we've all been dispossessed of one or another of our uh, basic rights uh, in some way or other, and none of us so uh, intentionally or uh, savagely as you folks have been, but... Mm. Um, uh, some of us can run close thirds or fourths, and, uh, and some, you know, I won't. I don't need to go. Right. Um, uh, I'm really glad that it's happened. And uh, wh- what is it like? What would it be like if everyone woke up? I mean, mm-hmm. it would be a bigger thing than we could ever uh, 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 than we could ever manage to stage uh, in a rally in front of this or that office. And I think there's a, there's sort of a danger in equating uh, the measurement of how awake we are with how many happen to turn up in front of uh, such and such a place in order to rally. Uh, Because manifestly, 99% of us can't all be there. But how, so how can we show our participation? I mean, you know, if, if I can and if we can figure out something that's significant to do on the 28th, uh, I would certainly be uh, able and ready to uh, uh, reserve that day for that. Right. So let's talk just a little bit about the 28th. Sherry, are you familiar with what's happening on the 28th? Well, the 28th is another uh, day of action. It's a call to action again. Um, and there are a number of things that are probably happening in uh, local communities all over the all over the globe on that day. So I encourage you to go to the Idle No More website and um, look at some of those events. Or, you know, I'm sure that if you Googled Idle No More January 28th, you would come up with a list of events. But there's something that you said in there that I think is really important, and that is that we've all been dispossessed of some of our rights a time or two. The entire planet is in danger of being dispossessed of one of their fundamental rights, which is the right to survival, the right to live. And that that right is being uh, taken away by the threat that's being posed to our water. And, you know, the UN is debating whether or not water is a human right. And I think that we all know that um, water is a human right. And, uh, you know, the ability to breathe air is a human right. The ability to just live your life with some sort of dignity is a human right. And that we're all in danger of losing that. And that's one of the unifying factors of this movement. Okay, so we are taking uh, calls at this point in time, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, 625 9378 And, um, you know, we, we talked about the concern about water. We, we did briefly mention um, a pipeline in our conversation. And so I just wanted to take a minute to kind of tie this into what's happening here um, in our region and why... The Idle No More movement is really being used as a springboard for discussion and education and unity. And um, there's a lot of different um, projects being promoted across the state of Maine. They have a lot of different people concerned from the um, the LPG tank being proposed in Searsport Bay, um, the um, East-West Corridor being proposed from uh, Coburn Gore to Callis that will... Um, cut our state right in half um, with this privately owned toll highway. 
And of course, the Enbridge pipeline, which is being proposed to run down from Montreal to Portland, and all of these are efforts to get um, tar sands, uh, oil, and um, other exports um, to the ports and to be shipped out. And uh, I understand that we have another caller on the line, so we'll go ahead and take the first call. Hello. Uh, yes. Hi, Lindy in Southwest Harbor. Hi. Uh, thank you for doing this show. <clears throat> Myself, like so many other people, are a product of amnesia, the uh, the uh, history of the Native Americans when were never included in, in our history books, which I <clears throat> recently just learned that still uh, the history books are written, composed by apparently a handful of white men in, in um, Houston, Texas. That was documented not too long ago mm-hmm. on uh, somebody who spoke on WERU. I think Val had a wonderful man on who spoke about who's still writing the history books. Interesting. So, <clears throat> you know, we're all trying to wake up, but it's very hard when you have this uh, historical amnesia. At, at, at any rate, um, I hope Donna Loring is feeling better. I was a part of a group that she and Tina Baker uh, taught at a uh, senior college mm-hmm. uh, and um, culminated in a book being put together called Voices Yearning to Be Heard, and it was about 12 of us. We went to the um, Abbey Museum and saw films, and, you know, not one of us was able to speak or walk most of the time after we, you know, we had... I had some idea, we all had some idea, but not the, the depth of, of um, the genocide to the Native, Native American people. Mm-hmm. So thank you for bringing your voices here. Tina Baker is now very, very um, ill in Sanji. Anybody who would like to go visit her should go visit her. She was a tremendous force. What a great loss to this movement. I hope, well, hopefully she'll get better. But uh, I just wanted to know if... Um, uh, how do you, is that, when you say idle no more, is that I-D-L-E? Yes. Idle no more. Mm-hmm. And um, could you just take uh, just a minute, uh, I can go to that website, I don't have a computer here, just could you take a moment to say what event on January 28th is it happening in Bangor, is it local, because I have a big mouth and I can spread the word, and um, thank you so much for doing this. I was a part of that group, and I was doing caretaking for my mother, and I wasn't able to continue on, but I, I so much want to get back involved with this. Thank right. you for being there today. Sure. Well, thanks for calling, Lindy. And unfortunately, we don't have specific information on the January 28th um, action. Um, I'm wondering it's if... still being coordinated. Okay. Um, I actually have a meeting tomorrow with Darren Ranko at the Wabanaki Center at the University of Maine. And so we'll be... Uh, talking about what we can plan for that date. Um, But it's important to note that we also have an informational session planned for the 27th on Indian Island around these issues. And there's a rally on January 26th in Portland around the tar sands issue. Lots going on. We have a couple more callers on the line, so let's see if we can get to them. Go ahead, caller. Hi. Hi. It's Esther. Hey, Hey, Esther. Good morning. I can't, um, I can't live stream it and I can't get it on the radio, so I have no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> I mean, Great. I know it's the best general, way. But <laughs> I just wanted to say uh, good job. Right on. All right. You have a lot of faith in us. If you don't know what we're talking about, and you're still going to tell us good job. I've been right. <laughs> <laughs> So just That's good job in general to all the people who have been active and involved. The rallies have been really, really great. And I know Esther's been there down at the um, State House last Tuesday, the Rally of Unity. 
Yeah, I still can hardly talk after doing all that singing. I know, you were singing like mad. So One thing I did want to comment that was really interesting when we had a, because um, I work on the main Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission process, mm-hmm. and we had a community gathering, uh, and there was an elder there who's a fluent Passamaquoddy speaker, and she was. we were talking about this issue of rights, and she she said that there's no word in the Passamaquoddy language mm-hmm. for rights. Because people just fulfilled their responsibilities, mm-hmm. so there was never any need to talk about having our rights violated because we didn't. We all took care of each other. So I thought that was a kind of a cool concept to try to strive to that you know at some day we don't have to talk about rights because everybody is being taken care of the way that they should be. Right, and I've heard um, I've heard similar teachings about that that we don't have rights, we have responsibilities. I think that's really important right now because a lot of this discussion has been uh, waged around the issue of the environment over the economy and um, the sense of responsibility that people feel to build an economy. Well, they have an obligation. They have a responsibility to build an economy that's based on sustainability. They have a responsibility to provide for future generations, uh, not just to make a few people very wealthy today. And so I think that that sense of responsibility needs to be added to this discussion in a really powerful way. So thank you for bringing that up, Esther. Thanks for calling, Esther, and thanks for your good work on the TRC. Absolutely. Take care, ladies. Take care. Do we have another caller on the line? We do. Go go ahead, caller. Hey, what's up, sisters? Hey, sisters. Yeah, the dude said white. Well, I'm red. I'm the red. I'm the red brother. (laughs) Get serious real quick here. You know what? I was listening, and I said, geez, it's starting to piss me off. You know, the bottom line is we natives in this country, we, people seem to forget the 5,000 treaties that were violated. Mm-hmm. People seem to forget the Eisenhower administration and the, the seven cities of relocation. That didn't work out, did it? Right. You know what? You know what? I don't know about you all, but people need to understand is that a lot of Indians, not all of them, a lot of Indians don't want to get involved. They'd rather sit at home and let the government take care of them. You know that. I know that. You know, a lot of Indians, just because we're Indians doesn't mean we get along with other Indians. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Indians who talk a lot of doo-doo and talk and talk, but they don't put the walk. You know what I'm saying? I do. I you know, you know, I'm not a Maine Indian. I'm Cherokee, Aztec. I'm a half-breed. I'm proud to be a half-breed. I don't really care what other people think. The, the Indian people today need to get off their butts and stop talking the talk and start walking the walk. You know what I'm saying? Where are the real warriors, men and women? They're probably locked up in federal state prisons or they're dead somewhere in some ghetto. You have two city. of them sitting right here talking you to You know what I'm woman. saying? <laughs> I mean, are you both willing to be arrested? Am I willing to be arrested? Yes. Are we going to talk the talk or are we going to walk the walk? Because you know what? I'm surprised you should have had 50 callers call in. It's funny when it comes to Native issues. Native issues is very complex. Number one, we have to continue to remember that there is environmental racism. Number two, we have to also remember there's a lot of Indians who don't care, just want to take money and put in their pocket and and go to the white man universities and talk about how they care about their people and sovereignty. You know what I'm talking about. Am I right or wrong? If I'm wrong, tell me that. I think that you're both right and wrong. I think that there are certainly people who, um, from all races, who 
don't want to get involved. There's a sense of complacency that's bred from hopelessness. Well, the thing is about the thing is, sisters, I hope you didn't realize this, but I don't know about you all, but I know for me, being red and white America, is that we are still invisible. Absolutely. And people seem to forget that. I don't get along with other Indians, and that's okay. We're not talking, this is not a, this is not a white man uh, talking about the whites and the blacks and the browns or what. This is about Indian people. This is about Indian people, not just in Maine, but all over this country in Canada. You know what? I salute the Canadian Indians for that woman who's starving herself to death. Because, uh, you know what I mean? She's doing a fantastic hero thing, and I hope she continues. And Stephen Harper of Canada, he needs to get off his butt and stop playing head games. But what they're doing is that the government of Canada is playing head games. Because when it comes to Indian issues, that's all they want to do. Oh, Indians are stupid, dumb. They're not going to get nothing. You know why they don't have water in certain tribal villages in Canada and the U.S.? Because... The money doesn't get to the people. It goes to the tribal leaders. Am I right or wrong? You're right and wrong, again. (laughs) Thank you. I think that um, one of the things that's really important here to remember is that uh, there's an assumption that uh, every leader is well-educated in the policy and uh, the legal lingo that's often tied up in a lot of these agreements. And I think that uh, one of the things that we need to be mindful of is the fact that there are some people, there's no question about it, who are part of this um, process, who um, are corrupted by this mind of greed, who want to profit themselves. But I think that there's also a large population of people who just um, don't know how to swim in these waters Mm -hmm. and that it's our responsibility to stand up and to support them and to help them to understand, to make better decisions and to support them when they make difficult decisions because that's part of the problem is that they're standing out there alone. Um, I just wanted to um, point to this article that I have from Native News Network um, that shares a statement from Chief Spence. And I think one of the things that uh, really attract people about this movement um, is the peaceful aspect of the movement. And in this statement, she says, this is a call to arms and a call to action in the most peaceful and respective way that reflects our natural laws as indigenous nations. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, we can stand up and fight and be against something till we're blue in the face. But um, from what I can see happening in this movement, at least uh, where I have participated, is that people aren't so much um, rallying against and fighting um, more than they are imagining the possibilities of what could be and what is and focusing on the positive and really uh, focusing on the unity and the togetherness and whether it's whether it's uh, Chief Spence at at Awapskak or any other tribal nation, um, the feeling of unity and hope is something that can inspire all Native people. And I think that it's really um, that that idea of imagining is so important. Um, you know, one of the earlier callers talked about the history, and Jules talked about the history, and the fact that Native people are not represented accurately in that history, that it's a very limited perspective. And uh, a Native writer named N. Scott Mamaday has this wonderful quote that says, uh, you know, our existence consists in our imagination of ourselves. The greatest tragedy that can befall man is to go unimagined. And the life way of indigenous people has gone unimagined in the public spectrum for 
hundreds of years. And I think that now these perspectives are coming forward and they're coming forward uh, in a multitude of ways, including through our prophecies. And so as we begin to imagine where we go from here, uh, David Suzuki also talks about imagining uh, what would happen if we unified around creating a more healthful, sustainable future. And so I think we need to um, talk about how that comes together with some of the prophecies that we have that are coming to light right now. Oh, that was a perfect segue because I did want to talk uh, real quickly about the prophecies. I know we got another caller, a couple callers on the line. We'll try to get to you. Um, uh, one of the things that um, many of the, the Native folks who attend these rallies are talking about are these prophecies that we're familiar with and especially um, the Anishinaabe Seven Fires prophecy. And these prophecies talk about these different epics or periods uh, that were predicted in the life of the people on Turtle Island. And um, the last uh, prophecy, um, the seventh fire prophecy, um, says that we are going to be coming to um, a crossroads and that we had a choice. Um, and whether or not the eighth fire is lit depends on our choices uh, in the seventh fire, which we're in, and while well, I actually believe that we are uh, entering the seventh, the eighth fire at this point in time, um, and so that we need all hands on deck, and we need everyone thinking um, globally about uh, the fate of our mother, the Earth, mm-hmm. and um, you know the consequences that are going to befall all of us if if we don't um, take action to respect and protect her. I understand that we have another caller online. We may have time for just one more. Go ahead. Uh, Yes, hi, I'm Diana Newman. I'm a musician activist down here in Southwest Harbor. And I want to thank you so much for your beautiful articulation of the issues and helping us to connect the dots. I just want to bring folks' attention to um, a tar sands action that is coming up in Maine. It's an important one. And related to these issues, it's called Keep the, tar- Keep the East Tar Sands Free. Mm-hmm. And I understand it will be January 26th, 1130 to 3. People are meeting at Monument Square in Portland. This is a major event, and it will be a cross-border event as well in support of Canada. It will be um, an, aimed at um, the Enbridge Line 9 in Canada and the Exxon Pipeline in New England. So I'll keep it short. But thank you so much for your important work and really beautiful articulation this morning. Thanks. Thanks for calling, Diane. And one more caller. Go ahead, caller. Good morning. When when you get done with the uh, prophecy, uh, give us contact information. Don't say look on Google. Uh, As long as this is profitable for Google, it'll come up. And when it becomes not profitable, it's not going to find on a search. Give us direct URLs, give us addresses, and give us some contact information. Thank you. Bye. Um. Okay, I think we have another caller, maybe? Okay. Um, Let me just take a a moment before we close to um, give you an important announcement. Um, On March 28th, the University of Maine's Wabanaki Center will be hosting a very special guest, Walter Echohawk, who is an attorney and an activist and author uh, who wrote uh, a book uh, in the Courts of the Conqueror. He will be visiting on March 28th and given a keynote address at 7 o'clock in Wells Commons Conference Center. Um, that's March 28th, Walter Echohawk at the University of Maine. And we have um, time for one more caller. Go ahead, caller. Hi, this is Anne Funderburg calling from Seal Harbor. Well, hello, Anne. 
and I am a member. Hi, Maria. <laughs> um, I'm a member of the, of the same group that Lindy belongs to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Donna Loring is our leader, and one of the things that we learned. We went to New Brunswick to the Wabanaki Confederacy meeting last fall mm-hmm. was the need for allies. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is what we in the Portagers group on Mount Desert Island are trying to do. We are trying to ally with indigenous peoples and to bring the message to the majority white community that they are at risk just as much as the indigenous people are at risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I was also up at the Wabanaki Confederacy last August up in uh, Fredericton. And, um, you know, one thing that stuck in my mind that Alma shared with people when she was opening up, and this was really a precedent-setting gathering because this is the first time that non-Native people were invited into council at the Wabanaki we were really Confederacy. Honored. And we were really glad that you were there. But I rem- do you remember when Alma said that the... Um, how did she say that? The colonizers have become the colonized. Mm-hmm. That what used to be our problem is now your problem because now you're seeing how, um, you know, really how it feels to have very little say in representation and how yeah. your government is uh, moving forward. Yes, and that is why I am so glad to see that this movement is not just focused on Canada or just on the United States, that it is becoming a worldwide movement. And this is what we really need. I, I, I think, I think as, as this grows across the world, more and more people from the majority culture are going to realize this is their fight too. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for calling, Anne, and thanks so much to, to Portagers for being such great allies. We really appreciate your your commitment to these issues. And so we're getting down to 11 o'clock, and we'll be um, closing up shop shortly. But before we do that, I just wanted to offer Sherry any last words before we go. Well, I think that the last caller's comments are really um, uh, kind of important at the moment as are all of the things that we're talking about here today because she talked about people from different backgrounds coming together to support these issues and that actually uh, coincides with another prophecy the rainbow warrior prophecy that talks about people from all colors Um, each direction represents a sacred color and so um, the individuals that are coming from all of those different directions but also from all of the different races of peoples will rise up and will come together united to address these issues that are a threat to the global society. And so um, I think that it's important to understand that the Idle No More movement that's going on across the globe, of course, we stand in solidarity with Canadian First Nations and with the attack that's being waged against them. But we also send a message to all global leaders and to industry that we will not allow them to continue their unchecked war against Indigenous human rights or human rights in general or against the earth. Thanks so much for that. And uh, as we close, let me just read this from the Eighth Fire. The Eighth Fire is a term arising from the teachings of the Seven Fire Prophecies. The teaching suggests that if enough people of all colors and faiths turn from materialism and instead choose a path of respect, wisdom, and spirituality, environmental and social catastrophe can be avoided and an era of spiritual illumination will unfold. Ta-ho. Ta-ho. Thanks for listening. Wabanaki Windows on WERU.